you know, after the printing press, a lot of the use of it was for pamphlets that almost led to wars in Europe, and it took 100 years for institutions of liberal democracy to emerge. But you could also imagine that there were alternatives to Twitter that have emerged that would encourage living room conversations or conversations beyond just attacking people in 200 characters or common town halls in communities. I mean, imagine if someone came up with an app that said, uh, we want to convene 50 people in your community of different backgrounds and different parties to have a conversation with each other online. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. I've been thinking a lot about a very simple point, that in order to be a small d Democrat, in order to be a believer in democracy, you need to think that most people, most of the time, are amenable to reason, that people are decent. And even though they may not think about politics very much, even though they may have average intelligence and an average education, they are actually decent judges of what we should do in the world. And I'm struck by the extent to which some of my own friends and colleagues, to which more broadly part of our public sphere denies that premise in ways that inadvertently make those people quite anti-small-d democratic. Just one example, it always irks me a little bit when people talk in a way which implies that most people are sexist and racist and bigoted and so on. There certainly is serious injustice which persists and which we have to take seriously and which we have to fight against. But we also have to have the belief, which I believe to be true, that our compatriots are capable that ordinary people want to dismantle injustice, that they can recognize when things go wrong. Another area in which this is increasingly prominent, especially in Europe, is parts of climate activism. In Germany, a big climate activist organization has recently declared that parliamentary democracy is not fit for purpose because things aren't moving at the speed they want or because the particular measures that they believe to be right aren't being implemented. I can understand frustration with the rate of progress. I think there's an important voice for people who are calling for faster progress. But when you are unable to convince majorities of a population, when your program is rejected by people, then perhaps you have to exercise a little bit of self-criticism and wonder whether your solutions are so obviously right as you think. Wonder whether you are talking to people in the right register. Wonder whether you should find a way to explain to people that they can have good lives and be affluent and not be judged for the things they want to do, the ways they want to live, while still effectively combating climate change through the adoption of renewable energies, through investment in new technologies, and so on. But instead, the instinct of many activists is to say, if you're not buying what we sell, then you are wrong, and we need to abolish the institutions that make people listen to you rather than to me. This is an anti-democratic instinct, which is always tempting when you despair of some of the people who uh, win political office or some of the policies that get passed. But it is one that, as genuine small-d Democrats, all of us should strenuously resist.
My guest today is Ro Kanna. Ro is a Democratic member of Congress who represents a lot of the area where Silicon Valley is located. We had a conversation about the role of tech in society, about what it means to have genuine free speech in the age of the internet. Recently, there was an interesting email published in which Ro Khanna protested with Twitter about their censorship of the New York Post's Hunter Biden story. But we also talked about Jürgen Habermas, about the nature of economic patriotism and a whole range of other quite fundamental political issues. Ro Khanna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Honored to be on. So you call yourself a progressive capitalist. What does that mean? Well, I believe in free enterprise and free markets, not just because that leads to innovation and economic growth, but because there is something about valuing human freedom. When we want to transact with another individual, we shouldn't have to get the collective body to approve such a transaction. And Amartya Sen makes the case for this most eloquently in development is freedom, why the market in some sense is supporting freedom. But of course, this priest opposes that people can participate in the market. And so progressive means we need to give people the health care, the education, the nutrition to be able to participate in the market. And progressive also means that the market can't be unrestricted in not considering, considering community. And so how do we define markets that still value communities so you don't have sort of unfettered movement of capital and goods in ways that leave communities behind? And in a way, there's been a change over the last you know, 20, 30 years in political science and economics from thinking of the state and markets as antonyms, as things that fight each other, to things that in key ways support each other. You can't have a functioning market without a functioning state and vice versa. What does that mean in sort of more concrete terms? I mean, if the United States were a country of progressive capitalism, what would change from where we are at today? Well, I don't think it's that original. I mean, we could go back to Alexander Hamilton, who I would argue was a progressive capitalist. I would describe FDR as a progressive capitalist. It was only in the last 40, 50 years that we had this view of unfettered capitalism that I think actually was a deviation from uh, what built America. But there'd be two aspects to it. I think progressive capitalism would mean that we would have health care for everyone. We would have a universal preschool, child care, pre-public college or vocational school. We would allow investment in people to be able to flourish. And progressive capitalism also would mean that the state would be in collaboration with business and educational institutions to revitalize communities, to ensure that we have place-based economic development. It feels to me like there's a set of policies which are actually simultaneously pro-growth and help to make sure that the economic growth we have has brought benefits to a lot of people. One of those areas may be the recent efforts to limit non-competes. That's something that helps employees get more money and it's something that actually is good for economic growth. Another area seems to me to be sort of YIMBY policies, right? Making sure that we can actually build housing in areas of economic opportunity. Is that sort of the sort of area you would focus on? Or tell us a little more about what kind of public policies could make the market inclusive in that kind of way, but also make sure that there's a bigger pie to share? I support both of the policies you said. Of course, we have to build more housing and not have restrictive zoning. And that housing needs to be affordable in places where people have been priced out of either buying a home or renting. And we shouldn't have these non-competes that artificially restrict 
labor and depressed wages. Similarly, we need stronger antitrust protections to make sure that the new entrants, new businesses can emerge and you don't just have a few corporations controlling the market. But I would say much more broadly, we need what Dr. King called a people-oriented society and not just a figure-oriented society. And that means a belief in developing people's capabilities. And I believe that means Medicare for all and free public college and a livable wage and policies of child care that reduce costs. And when someone said to me, Americans can't afford America. And there's a sense of that in the country today. What do you think the balance here is between the responsibility of legislators and the responsibility of companies and corporations? There's a kind of view where you say, It's the role of the state to set parameters to make sure that corporations are taxed fairly, to make sure that there's true competition and all of those kinds of things. And then the job of companies is to go and make money. And then there's a view which has become much more popular over the last decades with corporate social responsibility and now new frameworks around that, which really say, no, a lot of the responsibility is for those actors themselves to be people-centric rather than thing-centric. I'm torn on this. I get that some private actors like companies should have a sense of social responsibility, that they also have an interest in maintaining a functional society with a highly qualified workforce, and all of that requires that form of cooperation. At the same time, I sometimes worry that we sort of actually want this to be the job of politics rather than the charity of CEOs or the functioning of these committees within corporations that somehow decide on what their responsibility should be. So how do you think through that kind of balance? It's interesting you're saying that because Senator Todd Young from Indiana and I are going to be convening a roundtable of the top business school deans in six months to discuss actually these themes. What is the obligation of American business schools to have business leaders who are patriots, who care about the country, who care about social goals and community? And I, of course, think that that's important. You want business leaders to be vested in the success of a community and the success of a nation because you need that collaboration. We had that collaboration when we emerged in the Hamilton era. We had that collaboration when we won World War II. But I don't think we can simply rely on the ethics and values of corporate CEOs to do things like have Intel build factories in Ohio. I mean, I love Pat Gelsinger. He's passionate about creating those jobs, but if it weren't for the chips act that provided him with concrete financing to do that, he wouldn't be making those investments. And if it weren't for tax policies that prohibit or make it less attractive to offshore factories, companies will be doing that. So I think there has to be a policy framework that says, if you invest in America, we will invest in you. If you build in communities, we will support you. And then we also need the CEOs to have this ethical sense to flourish within that framework. One of the things you mentioned is trust law and competition law, and that's something that you've had an interest in going a very long way back. What is the problem with a traditional framework of antitrust legislation, and how do we need to update that in order to deal with a challenge opposed uh, to tech companies and other big corporations in the United States now. Today, antitrust law, because of Robert Bork, only looks at the actors as consumers, not as citizens. In other words, the only consideration is, are consumers going to be better off or not with concentration or mergers? But there are many other factors to antitrust. One is, Do we want a multiplicity of perspectives in a society? Do we want jobs in a society? Do we want new entrants in 
different geographical regions in a society. And so the biggest thing that I think antitrust law needs to change is to go back to the original Sherman Act, and that is to look at all the multiplicity of factors in considering antitrust. The original acts were saying that you don't want big corporations to have too much power in a democracy. It wasn't just about consumer welfare. What does that mean concretely? Make those harms clear to some of our listeners. So if the original framework is, well, look, the problem with a monopoly, for example, that says, you know, only I can sell you a car and only I can sell you electricity for your house is that they might set the prices far higher than is fair. And you have no way of getting around it. You might get terrible service. You have no way of getting around it. This is the only person you can contract with. Today, I can go to any provider for email. It's free for they harvest my data. You know, it's a pretty high quality product. Most people choose Gmail because Google just does a really, really good product. So on the traditional conception, people would say, where's the problem? You're getting a free product with high quality. You have other kinds of choices. Why should we nevertheless be concerned? You may or may not agree with a specific example if, you know, let's say 80% of email goes through Gmail to pick an exaggerated number out of a head. Why is it that there are these really bad effects on society as a whole, even though the consumer is happy and is actually being served well? Well, we can look at, uh, let's say, a social media platform, a Facebook or a Twitter, which is largely free, and people are often happy with that. But then the question becomes, do you want just two or three people controlling the digital public sphere? Or would it be better if other forums emerge? Would it be better if all those forums and architects weren't just in Silicon Valley? Is there a value to democracy to having a multiplicity of entrance in a particular industry? Email is probably a tougher case. Maybe there is, maybe there's not. I mean, it'd be hard to say, okay, we definitely need multiple people doing email. On the other hand, a lot of that data that is collected, the metadata, allows a company like Google then to build in YouTube and build in other areas. Maybe we want a multiplicity of people in that space. And current antitrust law wouldn't even allow you to answer the question of is just having more entrance a good thing if you don't show that it's improving consumer welfare. Oh, it's interesting you went to social media. I want to come back to some questions about social media, but one way of putting this right is that like we've traditionally thought about monopoly where there's only one seller. But today, a big problem is monopsony, where there's only one buyer. So, for example, when you think of Amazon, you know, basically any kind of small business that wants to sell stuff in the United States has to contract with Amazon. And so Amazon can take an outsized share off of a profit. And that might mean that instead of, you know, small local entrepreneurs doing better, Amazon is doing better. And that might be bad for America in all kinds of ways. You know, when it comes to social media, though, there are actually real advantages to only having a few platforms, right? Which is to say that on the one hand, I absolutely agree with you, and I want to double-click on that in a moment, that having a few people being able to make decisions about what you can say or not say is really problematic. But, you know, I don't necessarily need to have only one platform selling stuff. It's sort of good to have various platforms selling stuff. On social media, you know, we want to have everybody on the same platform because if we don't, then, you know, half of the people are not part of a conversation. And so that's sort of both a natural tendency towards and a natural benefit of having a dominant platform in social media, even though it obviously comes with risks. Well, I do think there's a trade-off in having uh, many discursive spaces, which is, in my view, healthy for a democracy, and uh, finding places for people who may disagree or have different backgrounds 
to have conversations with one another. And these two things often are in tension. But I would err on the side of having many discursive spaces and then creating spaces that facilitate exchange among people from different regions, different backgrounds, different ideologies. I don't think the answer is that we should all listen to Walter Cronkite. I mean, that I think suppresses perspective and voice. At the same time, I don't think it's a good world if everyone has their own itemized way of consuming information and isn't uh, exchanging ideas in a more town hall-like setting. So we need to do both. But you could see a case where you have 10 social media companies where you get to frame your social media consumption of what type of things you want to see, and that you're still engaged in multiple forums that have some sense of commonness to them that are exposing you to alternative points of view. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, I guess thinking through this, yes, we don't want to go back and we can't go back to a world where we have the sort of form of one-to-many communication that we had in the past, where millions of people are gathered around the television listening to one person tell them their version of the world. You don't have that on Facebook or on Twitter, right? It's lots of people, lots of perspectives, but it feels like there's some benefit to a lot of citizens being gathered together on one of these platforms. And one way of making that point is that it's not clear to me that the world is better if for all of the many, many flaws of Twitter, instead, let's say, half of the users stay on Twitter, a quarter go to some combination of Gap, Parler, Truth Social or whatever on the right, and a quarter, you know, go to Mastodon or whatever on the left. And we just have these sort of separate conversations from each other where we're not even capable of hearing each other. So that's where I guess I'm trying to think if social media has effectively become the public space, the public square, it's useful to have some kind of common public square, some central square in the town where everybody comes together. Yes, but you can build that. I mean, you're assuming that the discursive spaces would be worse than Twitter. You know, after the printing press, a lot of the use of it was for pamphlets that almost led to wars in Europe, and it took 100 years for institutions of liberal democracy to emerge. But you could also imagine that there were alternatives to Twitter that have emerged that would encourage living room conversations or conversations beyond just attacking people in 200 characters or common town halls in communities. I mean, imagine if someone came up with an app that said, uh, we want to convene 50 people in your community of different backgrounds and different parties to have a conversation with each other online. We have not used our imagination enough uh, to promote a deliberative conversation or those forums and to have those take off. Now, I have said that some of that could be a public investment. So you could have a public invested internet in communities or the public social media that have reasonable time place restrictions like I do at a town hall. But that can't be the only space. I mean, there are times you want outrage, there are times you want anger. I guess I've been heavily influenced by theorists of deliberative democracy, where sort of Habermas writes about all these ideal conditions that you need in discursive conversation. But then, in fact, in norms, he talks about how that's unrealistic in an actual democracy. And what you really need is many different types of discursive spaces. So what I would say is let's have many different types of discursive spaces, which includes Truth Social and Twitter, as long as we're actively trying to construct the positive deliberative spaces, which they have in Taiwan, for example, Audrey Tang has done. That's interesting. Tell me a little bit more about your interest in deliberative democracy. We've probably read a bunch of the same things. I always worried that there was a strain in deliberative democracy which had this slightly naive assumption that we can 
turn the world into a seminar room in the Harvard philosophy department or Yale law school. And so I always had this concern that there was something sort of over-intellectual and bloodless about the conception of the fundamental value of democracy being deliberative in that way and being constrained by these sort of very strong norms of reasonableness and so on, that was just never going to happen in reality. At the same time, when I go back to the text of the Founding Fathers, I do think that the fundamental promise of our political system has always been not interest representation, but deliberation, right? All of those wonderful texts and Federalist 10 and even Edmund Burke and so on saying, you know, the point is for Parliament to come together and actually discuss the common good, the public good. And when we give up on that value, we seem to lose something. So how do we take the best that's in the tradition of deliberative democracy, but put a realistic spin on it? I mean, you're a congressman, you know, you go around talking to people, you're shouted at on social media, you deal with all of the nasty aspects of politics today. It's interesting to me that you retain that hope in deliberative democracy. So tell us, how can we have these elements of deliberative democracy in a way that's actually realistic to the way that political debate happens today, which is not always pretty and which certainly doesn't sort of resemble a seminar room. I think the greatest deliberative democracy thinkers like Habermas acknowledge the messiness of the world and would say that the ideal speech conditions are missing in most democracies, and nor would you want to construct democracy realistically with just ideal speech conditions. I mean, there are times for anger, there's time for protest, there's time for yelling. But they want to orient the society to at least aspire to have forums of reasonable exchange that can inform decision-making. Reason, ironically, like the Supreme Court or something, you know, Rawls used to point to that as emblematic of deliberation. I don't know if we'd have the current Supreme Court be like that. So what I would say is have many discursive spaces, but then be intentional about thinking of how we can encourage deliberation that actually has impact. One of the things I think that makes Twitter and Facebook so harsh and vitriolic is I don't think people actually believe that their voice on retweeting something or sharing something is going to influence a legislator. So there's almost a sense of disconnect, of alienation. I can at least scream at them, curse at them. If there was a more of a tangible sense that your voice is going to actually shape public policy, as I think the initial town hall was, that you go and you talk to your legislator in that town hall or your local newspaper shaping policy, then I think people may be more invested in participating in those things. And Audrey Tang had this thing in Taiwan where people actually ranked legislation and offered ideas on legislation and then informed the Taiwanese the parliament. And so I think the challenge for us is how do we construct those kinds of spaces? That's interesting. I thought a lot about how people become abstractions on social media, right? You sort of shout at, you know, the simulacrum of Rokano, the simulacrum of Yasha Monk, and you're not really thinking that you're engaging with a real person because of this, you know, this little photograph and little account and takes even the sort of amount of in-person interaction you have at a town hall or something where somebody might come in angry, but they see there's a flesh and blood human being in front of them. And social media sort of lose all of that. But it's interesting that you seem to be saying, but there's even a kind of simulacrum of debate where it's not just that people don't really feel like they're engaging with real flesh and blood human being, they're engaging with this abstraction of what their position is or who they represent. But they even are engaging in a sort of simulacrum of something that might actually have an effect. That's interesting to me. Well, the traditional definition of the public sphere, again, not to rely too heavily on Habermas' 62 paper where he coins that phrase, is that there has to be public discourse that actually impacts policy, that for there to be a real public sphere. 
And that, I think, is missing online. I think there are many people who often say Twitter is not real life, et cetera. You could argue that maybe it's shaping some media stories, but I don't think people are really on these platforms saying, I'm an empowered citizen. I have a voice that is shaping policy. And when you don't have that feeling of agency, I think it can lead to the type of vitriol sensationalism attacks that we see online. How do we give people a sense of agency? Sometimes people tell me, hey, you know, mayors seem to get it right. Nowadays, cities are a little bit in trouble, so I hear that point less often. But, you know, mayors seem to get it right. Why can't we just take mayors and turn them into national politicians? You know, why are mayors getting it right, but, you know, the president isn't or, you know, senators aren't? And I always felt that part of that was that actually, despite all of the challenges of running a big city, the problems of mayors are a little bit more concrete and fixable and less controversial, right? Like, you fix potholes, right? That's not the only thing a mayor does, but it's an important and concrete thing that everybody agrees that a pothole should get fixed. At the national level is where you often get the most emotional debates over immigration, over national symbols, over all kinds of things where the splits are deeper. So how do we make people feel that they're effective? Because again, in a town hall meeting, you know, there's a certain budget line You say, okay, look, like, should we put it to the library? Should we put it to the swimming pool? And it's concrete, it's in people's neighborhoods, and you might see the effect. But the problems are also fundamentally more tractable, more concrete than they are when you're saying, how do we stimulate economic growth that you know also actually arrives in the pockets of a lot of people, which is dependent on really complicated economic questions that are harder for most people to grasp, where the delay between when you take a decision, when something happens might be higher, it might be less clear that it's actually had an impact. So how do we create the feeling of a town hall where you go and you deliberate about matters that are concrete and in front of your nose, and hopefully in the ideal case, you have that sense of agency? How do we recreate that at the federal level? How do we recreate that so that people feel when we're engaging with you, they're having a similar impact for the House of Representatives, which is just, I think, inherently a harder thing? Well, I think we need a sense of national purpose that can inspire Americans of different backgrounds, different parties to say, I can be part of this. I have proposed economic patriotism, which is that we need to rebuild our industries, have a moonshot of economic revitalization, that we spent 40 years watching factory after factory go offshore, and then left towns desolated, communities desolated. All of us, business leaders, students, labor leaders, need to work together to rebuild America's capacity. Other people may have other ideas, but there has to be some imaginative spark that can get the country on the same page with a common mission that can help with that process. But beyond that, I think that there are efforts at a micro level of getting people to talk to folks who are different from them without judgment, without criticizing them as unworthy or inferior, and developing more of a sense of understanding in our democracy. And the more that we can do that, hopefully a healthy conversation emerges in addition to all the anger. I mean, we're trying to do something unprecedented in America. The Canadians don't like it when I say this, but we're trying to become the first multiracial democracy. Canada is 80-some percent white. We're 60% white. We've got people from around the world, different religions. And so, of course, it's going to be hard. Of course, there wasn't going to be a linear line from Obama onwards. So let's talk about this idea of patriotism for a moment, particularly in this context of trying to build a multiracial democracy. First of all, you know, why do you think that people on the left should embrace a form of patriotism? We'll get to the economic later, but why are you calling it economic patriotism? Why do you think that patriotism is something that the left should own at a moment when these parts of the left have become, you know, quite nervous about any form, not only of nationalism, but also of patriotism? 
who think that actually America represents so much of what is bad and so much of what is unjust in the world that the idea that we should strongly identify as Americans in this kind of way is somehow problematic. What do you say to critics like that to get them to embrace patriotism as a value that the left as well as the center of the right should embrace? First of all, patriotism, in my view, just means that you love a community, that you come from something that is rooted. And that, to me, is a part of human identity. We are born in a family. There's nothing wrong with loving your family more deeply than you love a stranger. That's a human emotion. And cheering for the 40 diners and then loving a nation. Love of a nation doesn't mean that you can't be critical of the nation. You know, there's a famous saying, my country, right or wrong, when right, keep it, when wrong, fix it. That can be an animate your patriotism. But there should be a patriotism. And of course, I believe that America is an extraordinary nation with the Declaration of Independence Constitution, and that the ideals are there and that the character is there for this nation to become a multiracial democracy. That doesn't mean we have a nationalism. It doesn't mean that we don't regard the dignity of people outside the United States or that we engage in a form of xenophobia or a form of not any trait. It just means that we should care about communities in America. So we 100% agree on that. And I've made the case for patriotism in my two last books. There was a chapter in each of those books. So I could have said this. Here's an interesting similarity we have, but then a slight difference. I think we both think that civic patriotism has to be part of this love of country, right? That part of what makes both of us proud Americans is that we have that attachment to the Declaration of Independence, to the Constitution, to some of the fundamental political values, which our country has often failed to live up to, but which has allowed us to make and build a more perfect union, which has allowed us historically to overcome some of the worst injustices and can continue to be a lodestar for where to go in the future. We also both seem to agree that civic patriotism in itself isn't enough. It doesn't a sort of additional element that we should build on that. So, I've argued in my last book that that should be actually a form of cultural patriotism, not a cultural patriotism understood as harking back to the distant past and the you know costumes that people wore as they descended the plank of a Mayflower or something like that, but a cultural patriotism, which is the way that people actually engage with a country, the love of a hugely diverse, changing, dynamic country in the present, one which loves the cities in the countryside and the sounds and smells of what America is like today, which is in itself a very culturally diverse an ethnically diverse place. And I think most people appreciate that about it. You may or may not agree with that cultural dimension, but it sounds like you're sort of making a similar move where you're saying, I believe in civic patriotism, but also we need this economic element to our patriotism. So tell me about what that economic element of patriotism is. Are you thinking of it as one of the bases for patriotism or one of the goals of patriotism or both? How does it fit into that picture? So I agree with you on a cultural patriotism. In fact, in chapter 10 of my book, Dignity in a Digital Age, I argue for a democratic patriotism based on Frederick Douglass's speech on a calling composite nation. And what I say by that is I don't think nations are philosophical postulates. I mean, a nation is far more than just allegiance to the Declaration of Independence or Constitution. A nation is composed of events and things that happen to us and memories and emotions, battles and scars. And that is all part of building the culture of a nation, just like we build the culture of a family. I mean, my grandfather's story fought in Gandhi's independence movement as part of our family folklore. But what I call for in a democratic patriotism, the voice is this beautiful line that we need to be co-workers in the kingdom of culture. And I say that the question is, how do we shape culture 
in a way where everyone ideally has an equal voice in shaping that culture. And this is a big challenge because the view of a procedural liberalism is that anytime you start to shape culture, it inherently is going to be unequal for people who may not share that sense of the common. And that's why they default to the lowest form. You know, it's still high for in terms of justice, but a sense that we can't really have a common good. I think that that's too thin a conception for a nation. And the balance is how we can have this common culture and what that would embrace while making room for inequality of participation in creating that culture and a balance between the past and newcomers. And I think that that is a large part of the American struggle right now, because we're trying to figure out what that common American culture looks like. Is it okay to play cricket in Rose District, but still care for baseball as the national pastime? And does that become soccer in 50 years or not? And where is the line between tradition and new? And how does that evolve? The economic patriotism is just one dimension of the broader cultural patriotism. And it is an easier dimension. It may be harder to agree around this country on what the national pastime should be, but easier to agree that we need industries and factories here. And so I argue that economic patriotism is sort of low-hanging fruit in building this broader patriotism. It's funny because I thought in the past about the left not being sufficiently willing to tell a story about what our common culture is, that we should take this patriotic pride. I mean, Barack Obama has been excellent at that always. Uh, he's the best in the last 50 years at telling that story, an aspirational patriotism from the left. Yeah, but I think many people have been sort of a little bit worried about that. And then there's a criticism of a Democratic Party, which usually is actually made by different people, but which I've also agreed with, which is that Democrats have perhaps been too unwilling to talk about economic patriotism, especially when it comes to the effects of free trade, which I'm in general in favor of, on certain communities, the kind of disruption that brings, the kind of way in which actually we should have solidarity with people who are bearing the brunt of a negative effect of globalization. And it's interesting to me that nearly the way you're framing it, those two things nearly are part of the same patriotic failure, right? That the sort of failure of one part of the left to say, hey, we should be proud of America and we have a common culture to build and to defend one that's evolving, one that's diverse, but one that actually we share with each other. And the failure to say, you know, when a lot of jobs are leaving steel towns in Michigan, it's our job as economic patriots to make sure that these people are put whole and that they have opportunity and that manufacturing doesn't leave the United States. Those two things are actually part of the same story in a way which perhaps, to put it in more partisan terms, challenges on one side the sort of more far-left parts of the Democratic Party, and on the other side, perhaps more the moderate parts of the Democratic Party. I would agree with that. I think that the Democratic left or something sometimes too easily just defaults to, well, patriotism means believing in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. I mean, some don't even agree with that, but at least that's a good start. But patriotism is deeper than that, right? It's cultural. And I share this with a story when I was growing up, and we were moving into Amsterdam Avenue, and there was chatter on the street that the Khanas are moving into, into town. And then my father figured out what it was. And he figured out that there was a concern on Christmas Eve. Everyone put out candle lights. And would there be an empty space because we were in the origin? And my parents said, well, we grew up celebrating Christmas, which they did in India. And we'll put out the candle lights. Now, I don't say that every family should make that decision. But the point is, that was a real decision. And my parents would have been devastated if I had said, well, I'm going to become Christian to run for Congress. That would have been seen as dishonoring their own family tradition. 
this is the debate of the United States. Where do we accommodate the deep traditions? Where do we bring the new? Can we celebrate Diwali, but also recognize Christmas as something that has had a hold on American culture? And how do we build a common sense? And by just saying, well, let's just all believe in the Constitution and not considering the culture, we are not paying sufficient attention to people's lived experience and how they're concerned. At the same time, I think with the economics, you had town after town lose their sense of pride, of dignity. They saw jobs shipped offshore and a sense of their well-being threatened. And they didn't ask for much. They just wanted a house, maybe to watch Friday night football, to have their kids do well. And then they saw, well, that this is all going. Immigrants are coming in Silicon Valley. They're making trillions of dollars. We fought the wars of this country. What happened to us? And this kind of view, well, it'll all work out, that the markets will take care of themselves, that, well, there's people who are poor in China who are getting opportunities, and that there shouldn't be a concern for these towns that were decimated, I think has been one of the reasons we have such social discord in this country. We just offered people an unemployment check and then said, fend for yourself. We didn't even try to have economic revitalization. Let me stay with this cultural theme for a moment. So one of the challenges and one of the threats to building that kind of shared and diverse culture comes from the right. And that's a very serious threat. It's in some ways a boring threat because we all understand it. We all know what it is, right? It's people who say, what is American is apple pie. And if suddenly, you know, an American national dish is also supposed to be pad thai and soup dumplings and far and tacos and whatever else that somehow changes the nature of what my nation is and I'm against that, right? I don't want to minimize that threat. I think that is a very, very serious transformation in which we have to take our fellow citizens along. And I'm concerned that some of them are not along for the ride, perhaps less in America, which has always been a country of immigration and of some amount of cultural change than in some countries in Europe, where I think that's still a harder debate in many ways. But I think it's easy conceptually to know what the answers lie there. I have to say that I am more surprised by what I also see as a challenge to that from within people on my side of the political spectrum. And that is a set of concerns sometimes about what they call cultural appropriation. I'm not talking here about stealing the work of black artists who didn't have opportunities to perform in the 50s and 60s, which is obviously a deep injustice. But even about, you know, you're from X ethnic group and you're cooking Y food and, and that's really something we should be concerned about. Or, you know, you're drawing inspiration from the traditional products of this kind of culture. And that's really not for you to do because you're in the wrong ethnic group for that. You know, sometimes also trends that I see in education, where we see more and more encouragement for people to split up by ethnic origin groups. And I'm not talking here about, you know, 16, 17 year olds in high school having a club, which is on a voluntary basis, but I'm talking, you know, sometimes about teachers in elite private schools splitting kids up in kindergarten at the age of five or six and saying, hey, you're from X ethnic group, should you go over there? And I have to say that I worry about the way in which that too undermines the aspiration to that kind of common diverse culture. I personally see it as a way in which people who think of themselves having very good intentions are echoing some of the same concerns about cultural purity and the integrity of groups, which have historically driven the right more than the left. So I'd love to get your temperature on this. How do you feel about those developments? Is that something you worry about or do you not share that concern? 
Well, I think that they need to read Frederick Douglass, who was enslaved for 20 years as composite nation, because Douglass writes so eloquently. He's defending Chinese immigration as someone who was just enslaved a few years earlier. And he writes that I don't worry about Chinese culture coming to the United States because there was a lot of xenophobia and concern of, the, of Chinese culture. Because in the free air of America, the best ideas of the different traditions will emerge and we will become a composite nation, taking the best of all the ways of life from different people in different parts of the world and melding it into something beautiful here. I really think that is the vision of the ideal. I think Douglas articulated the vision of what America should and can be at the highest level, probably better than any American ever, because it was not just a vision of mutual respect and mutual understanding of people of diversity. It was a vision that we could fashion something common out of it. And the very dialectic of being exposed to these diverse traditions in an era of freedom would lead to this incredible composite culture. So my view is that that should be our North Star. Now, because we have not had equality, because we have not had fairness, for groups that have had oppression to feel that there needs to be some form of collective solidarity and organizing to achieve equality, I think is understandable. And there is value to that. But that should be seen as a transitional necessity in the path to ultimately Douglas's vision, as opposed to the end state. Let me ask you a little bit about a theme we were touching on earlier, and I want to get back to which is social media and the role of social media, the role of tech in the United States today. When the whole strange kerfuffle about the so-called Twitter files came out in the last few months, one of the things that came to light, interestingly, was an email from you in which you were expressing your concern with executives at Twitter over the fact that they had effectively told the New York Post that if they continue to post about a story they had about Hunter Biden, they would block or, or suspend the entire Twitter account of the New York Post. And even though you're no fan of the New York Post, even though this wasn't a judgment you were making on the substance of the content of the story, you were saying, hang on a second here you may be going too far in terms of how you're shaping the public sphere. How do you feel about the role that a few social media companies and executives you know very well because you represent parts of Silicon Valley in Congress have over America? And how should we collectively make sure that a few social media companies don't have this power to determine in an arbitrary way what we can, what we can't discuss as citizens of this country in you know, one of the key public fora for where political debate now takes place. Well, this gets back to our earlier conversation that it's better to have more social media forums. It's better to give individuals more control over their own social media, which Twitter was trying to do under Jack Dorsey and then got interrupted. It's important to have people have control over their own data so that it's not being taken from them and then used to trigger them or get them to join groups or take actions. But I think the biggest thing in a short-term basis is just a separation of control. As I've said directly to Elon Musk, the last job anyone would want to have is to run Twitter. I mean, who wants to call balls and strikes? Seems like the most boring waste of time. And Bezos, for example, owns the Washington Post. And I know people criticize that, but you'd be hard-pressed to say that the Washington Post is sitting there deciding whether to publish an op-ed or a story based on what Jeff Bezos is thinking. So as an immediate step, Social media companies should have a strict wall of separation between ownership and those making largely journalistic decisions, which is what running a 
probably the square is. And Bloomberg News or the Washington Post are examples. It's not perfect, but it's better than what it is today. So what does that mean concretely? I think having some kind of line of separation between the ownership and the substance of those decisions certainly is good, both to ensure that the owners don't have undue influence and honestly would probably protect the owners because as you're saying, they don't really want to be blamed for every moderation decision. But it feels to me like it doesn't deal with a fundamental problem, which is that I just, and I was saying this when Dorsey was running Twitter and I'm saying this now that Musk is running Twitter, I just I'm very concerned when so much of political debate, so much of journalistic debate in the country does happen on Twitter, which has an outsized influence, not necessarily because of the biggest social platform, but because it's where influential people get their information and have their debates. And whoever it is, whether it's Elon Musk in a sort of arbitrary way, just calling balls and strikes in between meetings at Tesla, or whether it is some you know Silicon Valley speech facilitation committee meeting once a week in some more orderly way, I don't want any of those people to be able to decide, you know, what kind of viewpoints you can express and what viewpoints you can't express, who continues to have that count and who is suddenly suspended or blocked. I just have a fundamental concern about that. And sure, saying the owner shouldn't be able to make those decisions in a haphazard way helps a little bit, but it doesn't feel to me like it's a real solution to the problem. So do you think, for example, as David French has suggested, that social media companies should effectively bind themselves to some form of a First Amendment, saying here are you know, very strict rules that we're not legally obligated to adopt, but we will because we think that's the right thing to do. If they don't, should legislators consider telling social media companies that if they censor content on political or ideological grounds, not just in terms of you know banning bots or banning people who are just doxing people and so on, but if they're being banned because of the substantive views they've expressed when they effectively are publishers and should not be protected by Section 230, just as, you know, when your post is not protected by Section 230. What's the most substantive solution here? Well, I would agree with you that social media companies should look to First Amendment principles. That's what I wrote in my email to Twitter privately, that leak. And that's because the First Amendment principles, I think, have been thought through for 200 years and are very robust and thoughtful. And the question is, how do you get a culture where social media companies are inclined to do that? I would argue newspapers, a lot of them do that. They want to have an opposing point of view. They'll publish dissenting opinions. They'll try to get multiple sources, verify things. And they don't do that just because of the fear of liability. They do that because there's sort of a trained journalistic ethics that has emerged from the era of muckraking newspapers to now that makes that something they see as fulfilling their responsibility to democracy and social media companies would be well served to do that. How heavy the government should be, certainly they can't mandate that of a private company. Whether they could remove certain Section 230 protections, I think would depend upon how much direct interference these companies were having. I mean, obviously, if there was a site that was saying we're only going to publish conservative posts, then it's hard to argue that they're just publishing anything and Section 230 shouldn't apply. But if there are different types of content moderation strategies, which is where the gray area is, what seems as speech to some seems as incitement to violence to others, what seems as a viewpoint to some seems as uh, suppressing or oppressing marginalized groups to others. I don't think you want the government in the business of telling these companies what those content moderation guidelines exactly should look like. I think that has to emerge from these companies, but the government could maybe require transparency 
on what it looks like. Yeah, so it feels like the minimum would be to have transparency. I mean, one of the things that strikes me about this moment is both that does seem to have been some amount of shadow banning in the past that Twitter has a semantic debate about what exactly shadow banning means. But if it means that the posts of certain accounts were artificially limited in circulation without transparency around that, then there now seems to be evidence that that did happen. But what strikes me even more is the sort of secondary harm from that, right? I think we're at a moment where on many social media platforms, people on the left and people on the right and sometimes people on the center are all 100% convinced that they're being discriminated against, that the platform is biased against them. And that comes, I think, from the fact that there is no real transparency. There's no real legal obligation to transparency. These companies can do what they want. And those are exactly the kind of situations which naturally breed mistrust. And I think having a political system in which people with extreme opinions, sometimes people with moderate opinions, are all convinced that they are being targeted by the system is really unhealthy. If we're thinking about how to actually sustain a political culture where those kinds of extremes don't have outside voice, removing their genuine conviction and also sometimes their insincere ability to claim that they're being censored seems like a very high priority. I agree with that. And I think transparency in some process is something that we could agree on in this Congress. And that could be actually a concrete step so that if you're banned, if your post is not shared, that you have some understanding that you have some process that you can go through, that you are owed some explanation. It seems those kinds of standards in exchange for Section 230 immunity is reasonable and is not imposing a particular government-dictated content moderation strategy, which I fear would be too much subject to who was in power. And if the Republicans came, would maybe be very minimal and if the Democrats came, maybe it would be very, very strict. And I don't think that that's, we want the government making that determination. For government forms, it's fine. You can have reasonable time, place, manner, restriction. But I don't think we want Twitter to be turned into as anodyne a place as my town hall. What do you think more broadly about all of the talk about misinformation? I have to admit to feeling very torn on it because... I worry certainly about disinformation, which is to say about deliberate efforts by state actors, by dictatorships, most often to shape the information landscape. I do worry, of course, about the amount of false information, about the amount of conspiracy theories, about the amount of straightforward lies that are spread on social media. So I take this topic seriously. I also worry, though, that the definition of misinformation is so broad and unspecific. And it has actually, in concrete cases, led to so many misfires. One, arguably, the suspension of a New York Post that you were writing to Twitter about. Another that I think about the debate about the origins of a coronavirus, which was really limited on a number of social media platforms because of various forms of quite explicit censorship, and which is now taken seriously, whether it's true or not, I don't know, at, at the highest levels of the American intelligence community. And so I just worry that an attempt by tech companies to act against misinformation is going to misfire as often as it's going to help, as well as breeding all of these secondary effects of people feeling censored and feeling targeted and so on. And I particularly worry when governments are going around telling social media companies that they must 
engage in blocking this kind of misinformation because that gets pretty close to the government starting to tell these publishers, you know, what to censor on ideological grounds. So where do you fall on this debate? How do you feel about whether and how we should talk about misinformation? I start with the fact that Americans are more educated today than they ever have been in American history. And I will fundamentally believe that Americans are capable of critical thinking. And what we ought to be doing is what Finland did and other countries have done when confronted with misinformation online is a rigorous education and all our ages of schooling and adult education to be able to identify the threats of misinformation or propaganda online. And that, to me, is the most important thing. The second thing is that the government should be an arbiter of the truth. That's not the role of the government. And I don't think tech companies should be assuming that role. Now, in certain limited cases where something poses a public health risk, I think it is legitimate to, in the short term, for a public health risk or a security risk, engage in stopping certain types of information. It's like you you would stop someone shouting fire in a crowded theater. You would stop someone from misleading information about a drug. I think it was appropriate at the height of the coronavirus, where we wanted science to be prevailing in dealing with a public health crisis, to have some reasonable restrictions if people thought that public health would really be a risk. I understand that these are difficult conversations and it shouldn't inform the long-term debate, but I think society in moments of crisis does need to take actions where there are competing values of the health and safety of its citizens. I think we probably had similar positions at various points of the pandemic about what to do and so on. But isn't the pandemic actually an example in the opposite? I mean, when I think of some of the positions of public health authorities throughout, you know, starting by the message that masks are not effective, when actually Twitter was one of the places that was pushing back against that initial statement by senior public health officials. Later on, I'm vaccinated four times, I believe, and believe very strongly that the vaccine is one of the things that has helped us get through this pandemic. But people who claimed that uh, the vaccine may not turn out to be fully effective against transmission, people who claimed that were sometimes, I believe, censored or shadow banned, that just turned out to be true, sadly. I could go on with two or three other examples from the pandemic, but actually wasn't that precisely the kind of moment in which, for all of the damage it did, having that frank debate also helped us do better. I mean, another way of putting it is that you know, you can put vaccine hesitancy in the United States down to free speech. There was a study I saw by some people who said, the cost of free speech is so and so many people dead because it supposedly brought this vaccine hesitancy. Well, you look at China, which obviously has a very, very tight rein on what can be said online. And a huge number of Chinese citizens did not get the vaccine because they did not trust the system. So actually, it turns out that we have a kind of natural experiment. And in a place where the control of what can be said about this stuff really limited how much irresponsible things people said, but it didn't, in fact, increase the outcome we care about, which is the trust in this case, the vaccine, because people just then have this meta view of, well, if nobody's allowed to say anything, how do I know that any of this works? So I guess actually, for me, the lesson of the pandemic goes in the other direction, that trying to manage the flow of information that kind of way was a failure, both substantively and in terms of actually limiting the spread of conspiracy theories and so on. Well, I would agree with you in general on more speech being good. And I certainly think you shouldn't be suppressing a critique of masks, either for or against, or even critiques of the vaccine's effectiveness or critiques about potential side effects. But I think that where 
there were efforts to suppress sort of blatant propaganda where sites with large reaches were saying, okay, if your kids take this, they're going to get heart attacks. Or, you know, the football player who had a cardiac arrest got that because he took vaccines, where things are so blatantly false and are reaching people in a way that would inform their public health decision. I do think there are lines there where it's appropriate in a moment of crisis for government to act. I mean, the details matter. And this is a traditional dilemma. Uh, which governments face in times of war or times of public health crises where it's appropriate to have some restriction on propaganda or speech that can undermine safety. And I tend to err on the side of more speech and dissent, but I don't discount the role that in crises sometimes you don't want propaganda and conspiracy theories that are conventionally blatantly false at a given moment. Let me close on a question I've been wondering about through this conversation. So as I mentioned a couple of times, you represent a sort of Bay Area district, which covers a lot of the places where some of the most influential tech companies in the world are headquarters, where the employees live, where the leaders live. What are some of the things that you think the sort of culture of Silicon Valley gets right? And what are some of the things where you really worry about the culture of Silicon Valley? And I don't mean here sort of, you know, employee relations at Google or something like that. I mean, the kind of broader set of cultural assumptions and political views that you wind up getting in this enclave of not exclusively, but a lot of them very highly educated Americans from some of the best universities with prestigious, pretty well-paying jobs who are all sort of together thinking that they're remaking the world. What are some of the things that you think we should learn from them? And what are some of the things where you get a little bit concerned about where that part of America's elite culture may be going. Silicon Valley defies stereotypes. They were the first to be comfortable that you didn't have to be a white male with a square jaw and broad shoulders to lead companies. And they took chances on people who had funny sounding names, looking not the part of a charismatic CEO, not a backslapper. And they bet on that when San Francisco traditional firms did it. And they bet on iconoclasts, and they bet on risk, and they celebrated genuinely failure. Now, they have blind spots. They have not reached out as much to women and the Black community, the Latino community, and it's not that they're perfect. But for the people who managed to get there, there was a sense that the traditional mode of being a Harvard MBA or working at McKinsey wasn't necessary, and that you could make it if you were creative, innovative, willing to take risk, and we would celebrate that. And I think that that is healthy, and to the extent that it broke through the doors. And it's ironically why people are going to ask me, these people are worth more money than anyone in the world, but they see themselves as underdogs. And then I said, because 20, 30 years ago, they were the underdogs. They were the misfits in society. They weren't the people who were going to run Goldman Sachs or fancy law firms. They, they weren't the public kids in high school, and somehow that seems to mark people forever. Yeah. I think the place where the biggest problem is an over-optimism about technology. I mean, I tend to believe technology is important to solve problems, but I was having a conversation on uh, the House floor with Jonathan Jackson, who was a new congressman from Chicago, and he's the son of Jesse Jackson, the reverend civil rights leader. And we were talking about Martin Luther King Day, and I was telling him about my grandfather who spent years in jail on Gandhi during Gandhi's time in the 1940s. And he said, you know, Henry David Thoreau influenced Gandhi. And I said, yeah, I knew that. And he said, did you realize that Henry David Thoreau was influenced by the Gita? And I said, no, I didn't know that, actually. And he said, yeah, I'm teaching you about your own uh, religious book, but Thoreau looked to the Gita, and that's where he got 
a lot of the inspiration to come up with civil disobedience. So that uh, evening I was with Google, someone at Google, and I was curious about this chat GTP. And so I asked them, okay, let's type in how was Henry David Thoreau's teachings about civil disobedience, which influenced Gandhi, influenced by the Gita. And out came this perfect essay saying, Henry David Thoreau read the Gita and was influenced by it. Gandhi read the Gita and was influenced by it. With no depth of thinking, no depth of analysis. As I put it, you know, ChatGTP could write my mundane speeches on the Oversight Committee, but it's not going to write Barack Obama's 2004 keynote speech. And I think sometimes there is such a sense that technology is the North Star as opposed to an instrument that can improve ends. There is a forgetting of sort of Dr. King's exhortation that the world has a scientific revolution, but what we really need is a revolution of values. And you can never put technology above humanity. And I think that Silicon Valley could use more humanistic thinkers and humanistic values. Rokana, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.